Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So we're really glad to have this special episode with Chad and Elaine on the podcast with us, and we are really grateful to them for kicking off our body series, and um, particularly something that I've taken away so far, and we will get into more as we go through the connection between individual bodies in pain and suffering and the body politic and Jesus's interaction with both at the same time throughout the gospel narratives, I think is a really rich uh, way for us to have started off our Bodies series together, and so we thank you for kicking that off for us. And we've heard your back a lot about your background uh, and bios with, that we've given out that have been more the polished scholarly side of that story. And what we'd love to hear from you all is, and maybe each of you, and then also together, how your stories then intersect. But how did you get to where you are uh, as teachers, scholars, activists? Um, where did the social consciousness begin? H- how did you begin to think? critically about uh, the church, about the Bible, about uh, Christianity, and uh, how did you get to where you are? Tell us the journey. Well, Elaine and I have very different journeys, uh, which in some ways I imagine um, straddle the spectrum of uh, contemporary experience of of folk in church, and what I mean by that is that uh, Elaine grew up in a very deep ecclesial and communal tradition of faith uh, that she can trace back many generations, and I grew up in a sort of a classic modern fragmented unchurched family uh, so I, I was not raised in church and came to the faith as a young adult. Uh, which, uh, you know, it's always interesting for us to compare notes. Um, The hymns that, traditional hymns that, you know, strike a chord in her kind of leave me shrugging because they're just not part of my uh, body memory or my spiritual biography, not having been raised in a church tradition. On on the other hand, I, you know, I'd, I read the Gospels for the first time when I was 18. And so I, I think I had perhaps an advantage of coming to them as a, at least partially formed adult. Uh, I think sometimes when folk are raised in church and, and have years of exposure, particularly to the Scripture, um, f- from a from a Sunday school perspective, that um, that uh, childlike grasp of the stories uh, persists. And on one hand, that's the power of lower education. Uh, on the other hand, that that can result in some relatively less mature. Uh, understandings of these stories or understanding them as children's stories. Uh, So for me to have encountered them as a young adult and without all the tapes playing in my head about what they already meant, um, 
perhaps open some doors for me to have some fresh looks. I, you know, folk who are raised in church are always looking to rebel against that and see, see the grass is greener on the, uh, on the outside of church sometimes. But those of us who weren't raised in a tradition uh, have the inverse uh, experience. And for me, I was, feeling the, I was feeling the poverty of not having a tradition. And so to find a tradition, particularly one as deep and wise as um, biblical faith can be, um, that, that was very grounding and, and centering for me. Um, but we, we still uh, have culture clashes um, between my kind of um, irreverent, um, impolite ways of uh, coming at these texts, not having been socialized into the niceties of church. Because <laughs> e- even, even though I've been in the faith now for 40-plus um, years, uh, that's mostly been on the edges of institutional church with more social movements and radical uh, Christian movements. Uh, and so I, I haven't been properly domesticated. Um, and, and so I, you know, I put my foot in it now, oh now and again, as you all Sunday. saw amply on Sunday. Yes. Uh, WTF from the pulpit. <laughs> Come on, Chad. Anyway, uh, so that's, you know, my side of the story is, is more coming to the faith somewhat new and fresh and, and being really struck by the power of these stories, but then very quickly um, gra- grafting into an activist-oriented um, radical discipleship movement that emphasized um, lived discipleship and, and community and justice. Um, and so that's really been my tradition, and it's a very eclectic tradition. Uh, so mine tends to be broad, Elaine's tends to be deep. Uh, I, the, the radical Christian tradition in this country that, that has, has been my roadmap of faith over the last 40 plus years is, is an ecumenical roadmap. It, um, radical Christians tend to find themselves, you know, a, a radical Baptist and uh, a radical Catholic are going to tend to have more in common with each other than they have maybe with their respective uh, ecclesial traditions. And the same is true of Methodists and uh, Presbyterians and so on. So um, I I've had the opportunity to draw from many of those different strands um, and include uh, um, them as part of my ancestry of faith so I can equally appeal to a Clarence Jordan as a Dorothy Day um, <clears throat> or a Martin King. Um, so uh, that's, that's been a little bit more eclectic geography uh, and and so it's been an interesting ecology of faith to partner with someone who's, who goes so deep in a venerable tradition. The last thing I'll say before Elaine jumps in is that theologically, by the time Elaine and I met uh, later in my life, um, I was in my early 40s and she was in her uh, late 20s, um, and uh, I had already come to an Anabaptist theological perspective, 
what my teacher Jim McClendon, a great Baptist theologian, called a small b Baptist orientation, um, theologically. But I actually had never met a Mennonite. Well, that's not entirely true. I'd met John Howard Yoder and people like that, but I, I didn't really know any Mennonites. And then I, I, I meet this woman who's, you know, wears this stuff beautifully, and and I, I through her was ushered into this amazing. Uh, ethnic and convictional tradition of which I now make my home and I'm very grateful for that. I grew up um, in a Mennonite community in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I am. I'm very grateful um, for that upbringing. Um, My parents were heavily involved in a volunteer way with refugee resettlement. So that's one of my earliest uh, memories is growing up with folks from um, all over the world. Uh, But my favorite, uh, because I was a little, little girl, were two uh, young men, um, Azcello and Abebe. And I believe, I realize, I think they were from Ethiopia. And they were so generous and delighted in my little girl self. Um, and so they were a huge part of my life. And my parents um, modeled that um, this is what it means to follow Christ, is that you are involved um, and you provide hospitality for folks that uh, are coming as refugees to the country. Um, And, and, you know, I'm always careful uh, with Mennonites. Sometimes we have this single story of how the work that we do around the world is so wonderful. And a, and a piece of that is true, and then there's also lots of work we have to do as Mennonites in terms of uh, letting go of our, of our own privilege, particularly European descendants of European settlers. That's part of the uh, stuff I'm working on now that I feel very passionate about. So there's lots of issues um, and work that we need to do as Mennonites, and I'm also grateful um, for the upbringing that I got. But how I, how I came to my own in this um, was in my last year of college, I, uh, I volunteered for the Big Sisters, Little Sisters program. And um, that uh, my little sister was a 13-year-old um, Cree girl who was in and out of the criminal justice system. And I went in with no uh, understanding of the juvenile justice system, but how I came out of that relationship was realizing this is not working. Like this is just not working for this little girl. The response of the criminal justice system is not helping her at all. And so I'm very grateful to that experience because that got me um, into the very beginnings of what is now called the restorative justice movement. Oh, that got me into the, the ground floor, really, of the restorative justice movement. And I went on, after my last year of college, went on Mennonite voluntary service um, down to Fresno, California. And I, I have been in the restorative justice movement ever since. So did, you know, victim-offender dialogue, worked with lifers in prison, worked with um, applying restorative justice to historical violations, systemic uh, issues and I've just been carrying on since then. So it it was just I always want to acknowledge that experience and that little girl 
that opened uh, the door for me to develop my own sense of this is really broken and what, what does that call me to do as a follower of Jesus? How do I uh, engage this work? Thank you both for sharing part of your story with us. Um, just to follow up on that, and then I'm going to turn it over to Chrissy for a question. So tell us, in, in, in a way of telling us about Bartimaeus Ministries, mm-hmm. tell us also why you're both not teaching in seminaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we want to hear about Bartimaeus Ministries, this, this ministry that you all run together. Um, but, but tell us that by way of why not the traditional seminary. Well, each, each of us ha- have a seminary education, and I think it's fair to say that our seminary education, respectively, had layers of alienation woven into it. Uh, so that was, that's partly the reason, is that, uh, just speaking for myself, I, I went to seminary <clears throat> part-time while working as, as an organizer, and uh, in social movements, and it was this was in the 1980s, and and it was really difficult to see the huge gulf between the seminary and the streets um, at that time, and um, and so I think that in part persuaded me that while I was eager to to get a seminary education, um, I was also eager. Uh, to have that education facilitate work that I was already doing in social movements. I didn't want to go to seminary to, to remain in seminary um, because I didn't feel at that time that theological schools were very much in the vanguard of social change. Um, <clears throat> and I also experienced a huge gulf between the, the seminary and, and the churches, seminary and the sanctuary. Um, and. And, and saw that the professionalization of the ministry, um, uh, that seeing theological school as a, as a sort of professional credentialing uh, franchise, was um, was not necessarily preparing people for what they really face when they uh, get into <laughs> congregation. Well, at the time, wasn't teaching community organizing, wasn't teaching nonprofit management. Um, uh, wasn't teaching conflict resolution. Uh, <clears throat> Still not teaching those. And, and, and that's beginning to change. We talked about that a little bit last night, but it's still a long way to go. Um, I also had, I uh, almost brought this up last night in the panel, but uh, I also had a really interesting experience. I, I worked my way through seminary, and I worked as a house painter. And uh, we had a little house painting cooperative. I was living in an, in an intentional community, um, uh, just like Greg and Helms do uh, here in uh, in Charlotte, over at QC Family Tree, is that a good plug? Um, <laughs> and uh, and we had a little house painting uh, co- cooperative, and because of our relationships with people up at the seminary, and this was the Graduate Theological Union in in Berkeley in the Bay Area, uh, we ended up getting jobs painting the buildings at the seminary. And uh, so two days a week, I would 
go up to the seminary um, <clears throat> from the other side of the tracks where we lived with my briefcase. Back then, briefcases were cool. Uh, you know, and, and sit in classes, and I would be treated one way. Three days a week, I would go up there in coveralls and, and be on a scaffold painting the, the, build, the same buildings that I would on the other t- two days be studying in. And it was a huge lesson for me how differently I was treated um, depending on what costume I had on. Uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of a class consciousness raising type of thing. <clears throat> so that was a kind of a further layer of alienation. Um, the, the other thing I will say is that my dearest mentors were, were uh, I've had many teachers, uh, very important teachers to me, who were theologians and, and seminary professors, but my most important mentors were, were activists and, and deeply spiritual people. So uh, when I was 21, in the space of about three months, I met LaDon Sheets, who was this disciple of Clarence Jordan, who I alluded to yesterday. Um, and uh, I just felt... Clarence was already dead, but I felt like I'd met Clarence and been called to this kind of radical discipleship through this radical Baptist tradition through, through his disciple, LaDon. Uh, and LaDon had been a high-flying IBM executive who gave it all up and went down to Koinonia and worked with um, uh, sharecroppers there. Um, so that was, he was a huge influence on really calling me to discipleship. And Three months later, I met Daniel Berrigan, a radical Jesuit, um, and um, so, so so those were like those were my my fathers in the faith, and and they weren't hanging out at seminaries. So so I just didn't see that wasn't an aspiration of mine. I I see the value of the seminary, and, and both Elaine and I now teach adjunct, so we actually are in the seminary, but we're not socially located in the seminary. Because that's never been an aspiration. Um, in fact, it seemed like it was a little, um, a little bit out of the stream that that, that we think is most important for witness. Uh, and, but but we're also very interested in struggling for the seminary to be more grounded. So our, uh, I'll let Elaine answer the the same question, then we can talk about BCM. But our our tagline is we try to work at the intersection of the seminary, the sanctuary, the streets, and the soil uh, because all of those streams are important to us. Um, so that's probably enough for now. Um, I, I have two experiences with seminary. My uh, first one, I did an MA in, uh, in theology and conflict management and peacemaking. So I, uh, I was in my, mid, my mid-20s. I was uh, doing victim-offender dialogue work. I was actually right at the beginning of that, started um, working with uh, Joe Avila, uh, one of the stories in the Ambassador's book. He had killed a young woman, Amy Wall, um, while d- drunk driving. And so I started through him working with lifers um, in prison who were interested in restorative justice, interested, you know, in what, what, does, what does forgiveness look like? How do I, how do I heal? Uh, and how, you know, ultimately they were asking questions about how do I, is there a way that I can say I'm sorry? You know, that was, that's the, the men 
that I got to work with. That is what they were interested in. And so my seminary experience was completely through that lens. And so on one hand, it was an incredible experience, but, but primarily because I was trying to make sense of everything I was learning in seminary through the lens of the work I was doing with these men um, that were lifers um, in prison. I struggled, looking at you, Katie, with, uh, it was a more conservative seminary, so I struggled hard to find my voice there, to say that women are, you know, can be pastors, can do this different work. I struggled mostly with my fellow students. The professors uh, were with us in that journey, but I got told I wasn't feminine enough. I got, you know, one, one student uh, said he saw a demon on my shoulder when I was talking about stuff. It was rough. It was rough. Um, yeah, thank you, Katie. You've had that experience. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, so that, that was that experience, but it got me into this, you know, uh, place of, of going deeper into, into my faith and deeper into the work I was doing in restorative justice. I, and, you know, now we'll weave our stories together a little bit. Uh, I I've talked about this before, like growing up in the Mennonite community, again, so many gifts went to a Mennonite high school, and then I went to a Mennonite college, and then I went on Mennonite voluntary service, and then I went to a Mennonite seminary, and then I was teaching at a Mennonite university, and then I met Chad. And that was just beautiful, because then I got introduced through Chad to this radical discipleship community, and then I got to meet women like Liz McAllister, um, who was a part of Jonah House, who on the, you know, on the fringes, on the radical fringes of her Catholic tradition, so deeply committed, doing amazing work. And I got to meet Murphy Davis, a radical Presbyterian, and, and all of these people, Nelson and Joyce Johnson, radical Baptists, that called me deeper into my Anabaptist faith. And uh, that, this radical discipleship community, we talk about this, it's the best party in town. Because um, folks are just committed to their discipleship and committed to justice in this world and, and uh, inviting us along um, in mentoring relationships. So it was out of that experience that I decided to go back to seminary and do a doctor of ministry degree. And that was wonderful. Um, I wanted again to be, I chose the, the most liberal, for lack of a better word, denomination um, to study in in Canada so that I would have to wrestle hard to articulate my faith um, with that community. And then in a turn of crazy events, it turned, it out, turned out that my fellow students were actually um, from the fundamentalist evangelical Canadian community. So again, it was me as a woman there with uh, three other men, and they became wonderful conversation partners. I had others to have conversation with, too, but it was a wonderful experience um, to try and articulate with them how I was um, understanding uh, what I was called to do in terms of uh, works of justice. So two very different experiences of seminary, but... uh, 
both were incredibly powerful and shaped who I, the work I'm doing today and who I am today. Thank you. Do you all want to dive into Bartimaeus? Mm-hmm. We're going to start plugging these books. Okay, nice. <laughs> we're gonna, Go ahead. Yeah. We're, we're gonna, Shamelessly. No, the big one. Um, we're going to plug our books because nobody's buying our books and we're, we, you're going to be stuck holding the bag with all these books. So. Um, uh, and uh, it's always good to, to show and tell a book over a podcast. Um, yeah, that's good. But you can already see that I have a wardrobe that's just ideal for a radio. Um, uh, one, one of the really animating things in, in my journey was being introduced <clears throat> in equal parts through the theological seminary and through the radical discipleship movement to the gospel of Mark as a, as a manifesto of radical discipleship and uh, <clears throat> was, uh, had the opportunity to, to dive deep into that as I was trying to make sense of my own faith and politics uh, and uh, ended up doing a, a, a long project over many years of trying to do a commentary on Mark. And uh, so that's the plug. That's, that's this book, Binding the Strong Man. But I mention this in this context because uh, when we first started our intentional community in 1976, um, as communities do, we wanted to find a name that, that would somehow both uh, express our journey to date and lead us deeper into that journey. And uh, in, under the influence of Mark's gospel, we decided to take the name Bartimaeus, um, who is the, the blind beggar in, in Mark chapter 10, who Jesus um, calls to join him on the way. Uh, and Bartimaeus is, the, is this marginalized person who immediately responds to the invitation to discipleship. It's really, he's the archetypal disciple in Mark because he's not hemming and hawing and giving excuses and all the rest because he has so little to lose. And, um, and, and that, that really spoke to us, as, spoke to our condition, as the Quakers say. Um, we felt like <clears throat> we were as as first world, you know, white, middle class, North American Christians, uh, we had all these blind spots, you know, and, um, and the invitation to discipleship is essentially to overcome our denial and our blindness and embrace the way, as counter-cultural or counter-intuitive as that may be. Uh, <clears throat> so, so we ended up uh, embracing this, this name um, uh, and this story but it was a name that no one could spell. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one of these obscure biblical characters. But that, that was the name of our first intentional community. And then um, some 25 years later, um, long after that community had run its course, <clears throat> Lenny Lane and I started uh, our nonprofit organization for um, a platform for what we call non-traditional gospel ministry, uh, <clears throat> I was talking with a friend, uh, and he said, uh, 
Are, are, you, are you finished with Bartimaeus, or is Bartimaeus finished with you? And I said, no, no, there's still more to explore in that story. It's still my story. I'm sticking to it. Uh, so we, we embraced that name again for this next iteration of our, of our work. So that explains the name and plugs the book. And now Elaine can talk about what we actually do. <laughs> um, we mostly focus on uh, education and advocacy and um, organizing. Um, really do try to bridge that uh, gap between the seminary, sanctuary, street, and soil, and actually have recently added or continue to do the work around uh, psyche and soma. We don't want to push that alliteration too far, but we're trying to hold, <laughs> hold all, of, all of those uh, things together. Um, and so writing uh, is an important piece that we both do, and actually that gives me a chance to plug <laughs> these two books, Why Not?, um, the first project that Chad and I actually, uh, when we were still dating, um, we, um, the first conversation that we had when we met, uh, I was teaching at Fresno Pacific University and the student body, uh, our Shalom Covenant Peace Group, had invited Chad to come and be the keynote at our Intercollegiate Peace Fellowship uh, Conference. And so... Our first conversation during that uh, conference, we, while we, you know, understood, had the same analysis around, around violence and why violence was happening in our community, we had very different experiences of how to address that. So I was coming out of the facilitated victim-offender dialogue or mediation um, camp, and Ched had been the last 20 years had been working in uh, community organizing nonviolent direct action. And so in our conversations, we, we recognized that while, while we were both coming out of the rootedness of the same kind of peacemaking tree, our respective works work kind of spinned in separate orbits, and they never... They never influenced each other, or there was very little conversation between them. And, you know, we were suspicious of each other, and, and you know, didn't actually, the two camps did not, you know, um, recognize the gifts of each other. And so really, in 97, when we, we did our first workshop together, together at a Christian Peacemaker Team Congress, we talked about the need for these two parts of the peacemaking tree to be in conversation with each other. And so now my shameless plug, that is what has happened in these Ambassadors of Reconciliation book. These came out in 2009, um, where we put out, um, Ched is volume one, uh, works with four um, texts out of the New Testament, um, of peacemaking, restorative justice, and then in volume two, I took the lead on three models of restorative justice that we we found helpful, and then um, interviewed nine practitioners, uh, unknown practitioners doing incredible work of restorative justice um, and peacemaking, and we continue um, to have that conversation, urging. Uh, people in the church that are doing peacemaking work 
to cross-reference, to have conversation together, to learn more about the other camp so we can refer out when we're stuck or bring folks in when we need a different perspective. Um, and that has continued to be a really rich uh, conversation for us. I want to say one other thing, too, that one of the, one of the most, I'm going to say fun, because that would be my word. You know, you might use a different word. But one of the most fun things that we're doing is the annual Bartimaeus Institute. We started these in 2007, um, and we started with a small crowd of people. Uh, now we have about 100 people that come in the third week of February, um, and it is the radical discipleship community that uh, comes to gather in our home uh, watershed, and we do Bible study and social analysis, and we struggle um, to uh, figure out how we can work for justice um, in our world right now. What are we up against, and what are... Uh, what are our next steps in our discipleship journey um, in terms of affecting change uh, for the injustice and the violence uh, that we see that is going around uh, us? So we've done all sorts of different uh, themes, and uh, it is a wonderful gathering um, of like-minded folks that are uh, trying to figure out how to deepen their discipleship um, and also be effective agents of change um, in their communities. So encourage you all to consider coming out to Southern Ca- sunny uh, Southern California in uh, the third week of February so you can escape nice. the cold if this, you want. This is Charlotte. This doesn't get cold. <laughs> we usually have one snow. It gets kind of cold. All right. So is it humid in Southern California? No, no. It no warm a, hugs there? No, just, just nice... Nice evening breezes and just, it's a pretty lovely place. Yeah. It's getting hotter, though. Katie wants to go. Yeah. Okay, that'd be awesome. You come <laughs> on. love to have I you. just want to recognize that the rest of QC Family Tree uh, just walked in. What's up? How's the pizza out there, fellas? Is it okay? Yeah? Have another piece. <laughs> hey, Helms. Welcome. So I was going to ask you a softball question, uh, but I think we're already in the thick of chasms and organizing gaps between seminary, sanctuary, streets, soil, soma, psyche. And um, what are you going to do with that silent P, though? I know. We struggled with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it still sounds like an S. Yeah. So so I'm just going to skip my softball question. Maybe we'll get back to it later. Um, Last night at the panel conversation, we were talking about organizing, and we were listening to people who are organizers in Charlotte. And, you know, because there was a significant event here two years ago, um, we're coming up on the anniversary of the uprising, which happened in 2016, uh, there's a lot of... There's a lot of fresh memory about those gaps in Charlotte. And um, as a faith leader, I'm being completely transparent, I'm still wrestling with those gaps. Mm -hmm. And so my question is is related to, you know, your alliteration. Mm -hmm. Is um, for those of us who are called... Who are, who are probably who are seminary trained, who are called to the sanctuary, who have a passion for what's happening in the streets. Mm. Um, how do we? Okay, so all of those things. Plus, uh, we serve congregations of people who have their own minds and hearts and passions and needs. 
Um, and we bring them along, you know, we, we, we all work together through processes of education, um, but we don't always end up in the same place. So that, that's point one. But th- to piggyback on that, when it comes time to act, you know, when the event happens and people are in the streets and the pastor feels called or the leader feels called to the streets and half the congregation does and the other half either doesn't understand or wants to understand and can't or is opposed, mm-hmm. what is the role of the faith leader when you need to act quickly, there's not time to go back and do all that, you know, the long work and no one's on the same page? And recognizing that as a, as a faith leader, your power, your voice is in your congregation. How do you stand in the midst of that division with integrity? Yeah. When we look at the uh, history of the, the Christian church, as Katie was doing in her classroom today, uh, we find that the, that the moments of, of transformation and transcendence within the history of our tradition uh, are typically generated by people who are willing to step out, cross boundaries, take chances. Um, they're, they're rarely, uh, we, we rarely manage our way by consensus in, into deep change. That can happen, but it's rare. And um, particularly top-down management, um, which usually is more about um, status quo maintenance by, by the nature of that beast. Uh, and so um, I think it is important uh, as a style of leadership for in this case, pastors, to um, be willing to step out and, and model engagement, what, whatever that is, whether it's engagement with uh, marginalized people in the city in a particularly hands-on way or advocacy in the political arena or <clears throat> witness in the streets. Um, it's... Uh, it's a style of leadership. I think folks in church um, respond to um, embodied homiletics. That is, what you preach about on Sunday is what you did the previous Tuesday. Um, and so, you're, so pastors don't find themselves in the position of asking their folks to do something they have themselves have not done. Whether it's living more simply, uh, whether it's, you know, um, breaking the addiction to fossil fuels, uh, whether it's <clears throat> reducing one's plastics consumption. Uh, pastors oftentimes get stuck because they actually are not doing what they think they ought to be doing, and so they get stuck in that credibility gap. Uh, or they use the, the, the congregation's uh, ambivalence to justify their own ambivalence. You know what I mean? And um, However, the key there, in, in our opinion, is when pastoral leadership steps out 
into the community and, and provides leadership. Um, whether or not the congregation gets it or follows them. The key is staying in relationship with the congregation. Uh, so you're, you're saying, well, you know, our conscience leads us to do this, and we would love you all to follow us, but if you're not ready to follow us, we're going to stay in relationship with you because you're our community, and we will continue to do our ministry. Um, that, that is as much as any community can ask. Leadership and relationship. Um, I, th- I think the business of you know church consensus before anybody does anything is can really oftentimes function as an excuse to do very little. Um, and I do think that is a malaise in in our churches that is that is widespread. Uh, and um, you know. Uh, to take the most dramatic example of the Southern Freedom Movement, which remains the most um, important and consequential social, faith-based social movement in the history of the U.S., uh, civil rights leadership, most of whom were organically um, located in black churches, uh, were not operating out of consensus in those churches. They weren't. They weren't there by the mandate of, of their churches. They were there out of the mandates of their conscience. King himself understood that very well. Um, they continued to go back and be with their congregations and challenge and push their congregations. But they, um, and so the you know obviously the myth that everybody in the black church was behind the civil rights movement you know that's nonsense. It was actually less than 10% of the, the folks uh, aggregately in the black church who were active in that movement, and, and they were getting lots of drama back home in the, in the parish, who was, you know, the pastor spending too much time uh, out there and not enough time in here, um, and so on. Um, but, uh, but there was that, there was that double commitment to, to witness to the gospel on the streets, but also to remain in, relation, in faithful relationship pastorally with one's congregation. Uh, now, of course, that's easier said than done because the demands of a congregation are a lot and there, there are trade-offs. The more time you spend doing X, the less time you can spend doing Y, which is, which is why, at the end of the day, we think the notion of professional pastoral leadership is itself problematic, that, that, that actually the, the life of the church and the leadership of the church should be much more uh, spread according to a variety of gifts and um, and so on, but because it is just a lot to ask someone to be a brilliant organizer and um, someone who can spend lots of time in nursing homes and someone who can you know run a nonprofit organization and someone who can wrangle a deacon's board. Um, I mean, that's a lot to ask of one or two or three or four people. Uh, so. That's one of the reasons why we are not ourselves ordained, because we think actually the future of the church lies in a, in a more distributed <clears throat> leadership model. Um, but that's coming. That's going to happen. Um, but in the meantime, I, th- I think brave leadership, we talked yesterday about brave space, I think brave leadership is woefully underrepresented in our churches. Um, so much so that it's not expected, actually. Well, and I, I was just going to add that I wonder if, too, I think 
you know, the, the powerful moments for me uh, when I think of pastoral leadership is when uh, pastors are able um, to be out there um, ahead of the, con- uh, of the congregation and then coming back and in a confessional way, like I could not do otherwise. You know, like this is, this is what is required of me. Um, and this is the call on, on my life is to be in the street, is to be out there um, and be a pastoral, uh, a pastoral presence there. And, uh, you know, that is when I have seen more transformation in people's lives. They're po- possibly um, willing to, to join in that then. But I, I, would, I agree with Chen. Like, rarely have we seen the kind of a combination of pastoral prophetic leadership um, having having that uh, combination and being able to act on both of those to the extent that a congregation needs that's a, that's a pretty high demand um, but I also think that is where you know in terms of wanting to bridge the gap between the sanctuary and the street we need to get more uh, into the street and help, like you all are, trying to get your congregants to join you out there. Thank you. Um, it's my turn to ask a question, mm-hmm. and I want to turn a little bit towards Elaine's work a little bit, but I want both of you to be able to answer this. Um, yesterday in your sermon, uh, I really appreciated the way you spoke from social location mm-hmm. to social location. Meaning, as you know, white uh, radical disciples um, speaking to a context of white and privileged folks, predominantly in our church in a white dominant setting. And I think one of the challenges that we find in pastoral ministry in a setting like this is that when we take social location seriously, mm-hmm. what often happens is a kind of uh, traumatic revelation mm-hmm. that then becomes hard to manage. So we have conversations about uh, waking up to racial injustice uh, as we did our first year series that Chrissy led us through. And during that year, people became aware of historical uh, forms of injustice, systemic oppressions that their grandparents and great-grandparents and others benefited from and that they today now benefit from and are the beneficiaries for going forward and currently related to the criminal justice system and housing and health care and education. And you look at all the outcomes and you can see the disparity there uh, racially. Um, but what we find is that there tends to be a lot of sort of white guilt that comes out of that. We've talked about white fragility in this setting, in this very room. And I was struck in something I read that you said that made me think about how actually awakening to that is traumatic to those who are awakening to, their, to the trauma that they are now the beneficiaries of. And I wonder if you could talk about, from both of your perspectives, what does it mean to work together toward uh, uh, restoration, uh, healing, in a setting where that can be a very painful experience for uh, for white folks to mm. to walk through and and what is that from your angle how do you how do you what does working through that trauma feel like and look like does that make sense yeah I think so I mean um, 
The stuff that I'm most excited about that I get to that I get to work on now uh, um, in this the rest of the rest of this year, um, and then we'll continue to work out of. But I'm trying to write up, and it, it's related to my uh, Doctor of Ministry um, studies, and it it has to do with identity formation. How were we taught to be who we are, a member of our um, community, and what pieces of that do we want to hang on to because they are healthy and you know uh, informative in a good way, and then what are the pieces that we have to shed um, and so you know how i 'm working at that is in two ways, looking at first of all what we what we carry and then what we walk into and you know, part of what we carry, those of us that are of European descent, um, we carry an immigrant legacy. If we don't, you know, have indigenous, um, indigenous pieces of us to North America, to, to Turtle Island, we came here. Our people came here um, at some point, and so we all have that immigrant history. And whether we came here uh, voluntarily or forced or, or a combination of that, um, whatever that is, what I have learned from trauma studies is that we carry that history in our bones. Um, and whether our ancestors were um, complicit in the colonization of our country, complicit in the slave trade um, or in owning slaves. That, that's, the, that's the pieces that many of us have to do the hard work um, of wrestling with. And so, you know, the work I'm trying to do is trying to uh, address um, white um, supremacy. Um, but Hopefully we are, as we do this work together, right? So we talk about what we carry, but we also talk about what we come into, the history of the land um, of where our ancestors settled or where we have settled. What is the people's history of that place, this, where this very church building is? Um, what, what are the, the, the layers in the soil that are of the struggles of stories for justice um, and, and violation. Um, in my, my experience has been, and I've done these workshops um, ranging, trying to do it in one day, which felt very, very short, over a period of, you know, a couple of months to a three-day training. Part of what has, I think, been helpful is to very, to do that hard work, that ancestral work of what, what are the stories that we do carry in our history? Because we didn't just arrive here and, in our case, you know, enter the wanting to do justice work. We have been, in my case, the beneficiary of um, privileges for many, many years. And 
But, it, but it's almost like doing that work together. We realize we, we share this in common. And it is, it is not something that we need to get stuck in, but we need to do the hard work of, of telling those stories and uncovering um, the different privileges that have been passed on to us so that we can do the social analysis of what is happening in our streets right now. Um, and I mean, so part of it is that historical truth-telling um, of, of our family. Part of it is also the somatic healing piece, which I think you all are entering this year, um, acknowledging that there, there is a history of um, trauma, whether that's, you know, perpetrator-induced trauma, meaning that we were a part of the, the people, our ancestors were the part, of, part of the people that were colonizers, slave owners, etc., or whether our ancestors also experienced trauma. Sometimes it's both. But doing that practices of somatic healing around that, and just complexifying our history enough um, so that we can enter into that story um, and enter into a space um, with some historical truth-telling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, so building on that, um, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, um, psychologists uh, Fossum and, and Mason wrote a book called Facing Shame, mm-hmm. uh, which, which these were marriage and family counselors, um, but they, they did a very sophisticated analysis of trying to understand how shame lodges itself in a family system. And what they identified was um, that the masks of shame, um, among the many things they identified, one was a fairy tale identity, that, that you have a personal or a communal story that only focuses on your own nobility or innocence or both. The other thing they pointed to was the, the tendency in shame, what they called shame-bound family systems for people to swing between manic and depressive uh, experiences and um, expressions. So they're either super depressed about who they are or they're super pumped up about who they are, um, both of which are distortions. Well, um, I, I found that very helpful in, in the, the family systems work I was doing, but I found it extremely helpful as social analysis on trying to understand white America. Um, that, that, you know, when we talk about white guilt or white shame, we're, we're actually talking about a social psychic system in which we, we are captives to a fairy tale identity of who we were and who we are uh, on one hand. And, and then we ride this pendulum of manic depressive. Uh, experience, um, uh, which is very evident in our politics uh, and our politicians, but also in oftentimes in our small communities, um, <clears throat> where it's it's very difficult for us to just see who we are. Um, yesterday, we quoted Harriet Tubman talking about I freed a thousand slaves. I could free a thousand more if they only knew they were slaves. Well, that's really just paraphrasing. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth saying, you know, um, 
physicians are only useful to people who actually understand themselves to be sick. It's no wonder that we are crazy in, in, uh, as, as the dominant race in a globally dominant empire. Uh, because we, we have to live up to this fairy tale identity of being both noble and innocent uh, as, as a people. Um, and, and then um, shit goes sideways, and we don't understand why, because it doesn't match the, 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 the fairy tale narrative, whether that's the Charlotte Uprising um, or um, <clears throat> Hurricane Katrina or uh, foreign uh, military train wrecks. Um, and, uh, and so very little will change for us until and unless we begin to understand the disease that the cost of the disease we carry, that, that we break through the, the fantasy that everything's okay and uh, um, the contradictions are minimal. Um, because that's, what, that's what's happening when somebody wants to bring up the past or when somebody wants to bring up the, the persistent problem of homelessness or poverty and we find ourselves defensive. It's because we're protecting a fairy tale identity so that we can't actually acknowledge, yeah, you know what? There's some serious issues of justice here. There's some serious issues of inequity and prejudice. Yeah, there are. Um, we, we oftentimes about, talk about the, diff, uh, the, the difference between white guilt and white shame. Uh, white guilt actually would theoretically be a healthy thing. That is, yeah, that really did happen. Yeah, here's, here, the, here are the, the intergenerational structures that made that inevitable. Um, guilty as charged, let's repair it. Let's, let's fix it. Let's heal it. That's what, what's called healthy guilt. Yeah, my bad. I did, you know, in relationships. You, you violate someone, you... You talk over your, your partner, and, well, my bad, I did that, let's, let's fix that. That's healthy guilt. Shame, according to Fossum and Mason, simply locks us down in paralysis where we cannot either see the real diagnosis because we're in denial and we're not interested in doing anything because we actually think we're okay. Um, but if we can just take the creaturely humility that we are flawed, we're part of a flawed system. Um, and so how can we get healthy? If everybody was in this to get healthy, uh, we'd, we'd be in much better shape. Now, if churches can't be a subculture where the whole point of being in this community is we are all um, folks with various aspects of diseasedness trying to get healthy, uh, we've got language for that in our tradition. We've got um, we've got the the healing uh, practices in our tradition for healing. It's all there, but instead, what actually exists in most of, most of our churches is white supremacy culture, which cannot admit guilt, which cannot see fundamental flaws, 
because it would be to give up the fairy tale identity. And, and so in the process of that, we're carrying this burden of perfectionism or, or of our own idealism of ourself. And, and that's making us sick. So in Elaine's research, um, part of the trauma her people carried uh, expresses itself in mental um, uh, unhealth and depression and even possibly things like Alzheimer's. Um, we, we are people who wants to forget the past because the past might implicate us. Um, and, and so we're just walking around carrying the burden of this disease. You flip the paradigm and say, ah, oh, we're sick, let's get healthy, let's get free of this and be more human. That is such a beautiful vision. Now, who, what, what paradigm happening in churches ubiquitously in this country um, looks at the world that way? The addiction recovery model, which is meeting in the basements of all of our churches. You cannot be a member of a 12-step group if you do not own your addiction. You're only there to get healed. You're not there to spectate. Look at our churches. Folks come to our churches to spectate or be entertained or whatever it is. Um, but the language of our churches is, I'm a sinner. I want to I be redeemed. That's actually 12-step language. Uh, so, you know, those are... That's both the bad news and the good news all at once. We, we have the possibility to recover ourselves as communities of recovery. Um, but not until we can actually name the addiction or the sin. Um, and that's where liberal Baptists, uh, you know, who are busy trying to play down the language of sinfulness because of the dysfunctional history of that, um, can sometimes lose the plot, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And uh, that's a really, really rich jumping off point for us as a group because we're about to uh, transition to the time of um, group questions. And so the way we're going to do that is there's a mic set up right here. I'm going to move it to the center so everyone has equal access to it. And it is uh, number six for you, John. You probably know that. Is it good right here? Yeah, there's a motion on the floor for a three-minute break. Biological. Is there a second by a break? Okay. Hold your questions. Hold your questions. I think I did that. Yeah. All right, we're going to call this meeting back to order here. Let's talk about that. I mean, that would be fun. That was necessary. All right, I think we are ready to get back to this with some great questions from everyone who's gathered. David, you're up. Are we supposed to step up to the You are, because we're recording. I've done that. (laughs) I really wanted to follow up with your comment. And that, you know, back in the 60s, they had teach-ins where there would be a a learning of the situation so you could better understand that. And my recommendation to the group is go to that first floor of the African-American Museum on the mall and take time. It has multiple floors, but on that first floor, I spent the whole day and learned a lot of things 
that I didn't know about this whole issue of slavery. It's really, really educational. Now, I said I spent the whole day, and that is because I had wanted to go to the museum. It opened up two months after my previous visit to Washington. So I looked forward to it, and I thought, oh, this will be great. The lines will be gone. (laughs) (laughs) Now, and then you look at trying to get a ticket, and... uh, It says, oh, get online at 6.30 in the morning. So you get online at 6.30 in the morning, and you're there, and you hit the button, and it says, there are no tickets available for today. So anyhow, and then you think, oh, man, what am I going to do? And then it says, oh, sign up for it in advance. So you're there in May, and it said, now you can get September tickets. Well, that didn't help either. But then I learned that every day at 1 p.m., you can line up and they will give out tickets as long as they are available. So the lady comes out at 1 o'clock, and she has this stack of tickets. And everyone gets one, and she still has that much of a stack left over. So yes, you can get in, but you've got four hours from 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock when they close. So my day was four hours there and I had to come back and do that same thing to get onto the second floor. And that's because I'm like a museum person who has to read every little entry. And someone said, oh, you don't have to do that. Just take along your cell phone and photograph them, and then when you get home, you can read them. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, history, here's, here's why history, uh, especially the history of our own people, is so interesting. Freud put it this way. That which is unconscious is bound to be repeated. You know, he, he, he saw that as a psychoanalytic truism. That, that when, we're, when, we, when we don't bring stuff to consciousness, we just keep circling back around. Same behavior, same attitudes, same mistakes. The philosopher Santayana put it this way. Uh, if we do not learn from history, we are bound to repeat it. Same insight, one personal, one political. Uh, the reason we continue to have... Uh, I'm from Los Angeles. I've seen my city burn twice in my lifetime. Once in 1965 when I was 10, and once in uh, 1992 uh, in the largest civil disturbance in the history of the United States. Uh, and... Uh, and if, if we actually have not learned and healed from mistakes, personal and political, we will simply continue to inflict them, oftentimes in a slightly uh, different form. Um, so uh, in, in one generation, it's uh, sharecropping slavery. In another generation, it's incarceration slavery. In one generation, it's lynching. In another generation, it's shooting down unarmed black men in the street. But it's the same unconscious pattern being repeated because we have not really wrestled it to the ground. And so again, this is a matter of our... It's in our self-interest, actually, to do this hard work because we are not healthy like we think we are. And we spend a lot of energy trying to persuade ourselves everything's okay until it isn't, and we have to go back and realize, wow, we're back to square one. So that's why um, 
ritualizing history. That's what a museum at its best is. It provides an opportunity for us to retrace our footsteps and encounter stuff um, and hopefully um, come out with a determination to be, uh, to be different. So I, I appreciate a museum when it's well done. Of course, museums can also enshrine um, dysfunctional views of our story, so it all depends. <laughs> I'm uh, happy to rejoin the conversation here <laughs> in my horse voice. Uh, I had a friend who died two years ago who was a Harvard undergraduate, Marshall Fellow, a Harvard Law graduate, and a passionate uh, defender of the environment. He was appalled by what we're doing to our natural environment. And after practicing with a big firm here for a couple of years, he felt moved to do something different. So he talked. To, he heard that a major environmentalist group based in Atlanta was looking for a southern regional legal counsel. And he went over to talk to them. And they said, well, you've got everything we're looking for uh, in this job. And, and then my friend said, let me just ask you this. Would you rather have me come here as your lawyer, or have me stay where I am as a well-compensated lawyer in a large law firm uh, and donate substantial amounts of money every year to your work. And they kind of smiled and said, you know, we could really use the money. <laughs> uh, and I think there's a, there's a, there's a message there. Uh, I can't be you. It is not in me, I think, to be you. I'm not sure I'd want to be you. Uh, but I think what, what your, your life calls out to us is to be the best me I can be and be uh, attentive and understanding to the things that motivate you to live the life the two of you lead. And... Uh, I think, you know, we, we all think, gee, can I give up everything I have and go work uh, for justice at the grassroots level? And the answer is, in some cases, perhaps, but what we can really do uh, is make sure that we keep in touch uh, with the opportunities to do the things we can do in that area. I'm a lifelong journalist, and I went to a meeting uh, some weeks ago of a group that was uh, trying to set up a program to help neighborhood groups learn how to use journalists, how to relate to journalists, how to get the, basically how to tell their stories. They have stories, they have no voice. Uh, and I said, look, I mean, if, look at me. I'm, I'm an old white guy. I'm relatively wealthy. I'm relatively well-connected. Uh, I'm probably going to continue to be that. The question is, how can I, how can I help in the things you're trying to do? And uh, and they laughed at me, of course. But but then also had some ideas about things I might do. The the uh, the tendency is to go in and want to be the, the answer man, mm. and uh, and say, well, I can fix that for you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's useful, uh, but it's not up to me to determine whether that's the best way for me to do it. But I think being in, in touch 
uh, with them and, and trying to understand the stories they were telling was important for me. I'm not going to be them, but I can be the best me that I can be in relation to the things that, are, that they care about. So that's not really a question, I suppose, but if you have any comments, I'd welcome Thank you. Well, I'm just, you know, as you were, you were speaking, and I think the earlier, we just had a side conversation about um, restorative justice, and, you know, one of, one of the components of restorative justice, whether we're uh, working on a, a, community, a, a community level or a national level, is going, being in conversation, like you say, with the folks. They're, the first step is understanding this history that we've been talking about, what, what we bring, the, the layers of, of struggle on the soil, you know, all of those issues of injustice and privilege that, that, that we carry historically. But then the second step is having enough of a relationship with folks to listen to how they are identifying their, their needs, um, um, what our obligations, responsibilities, being, being in conversation about that and allowing or inviting folks to direct us in how we can, how we can truly engage, um, work with them. And I, you know, I agree with your, we, we bring who we are and bring the gifts that we have but, like you named, don't go in with the answer. A restorative justice question is allowing the, the folks that have experienced historical margin, marginalization or continued oppression to name uh, the harms that have happened and the needs that they have, and then in dialogue talking about reparations and you know, all of the myriad of ways that we can be engaged in figuring out how to work for restoration or justice. Thank you. The, the model of engagement, um, the model of church engagement that we find in our, in our New Testament has very little to do with the notion of the heroic problem solver uh, or um, messiah complex uh, that tends to prevail particularly in, in privileged circles. Um, the, the primary metaphor is germane to the theme of this year is the metaphor of a body, right? It's the metaphor that Apostle Paul, a great community organizer, uses to describe what the church is at its most powerful. It is a body with many parts uh, and many functions and, and many um, uh, practices, but it's a body of one purpose, Right? So he goes to great lengths to describe the, the various roles that different people do. Um, I think what we, where we miss the boat sometimes in our churches is we, uh, we want to have sort of high-profile individual expressions. The more heroic, the better. Rather than um, understanding that as a, as a community of, of conviction, if, if, we, if we could have a, a, a unity of purpose and then understand that the, the diversity of engagement in that purpose is actually a strength. Um, right? So we, we need storytellers, and, and we need legal uh, battle, and we, we need caregivers, and 
We need um, powerful orators, and uh, we need uh, ritualists. ritualists. Uh, We need these things for the purpose of healing in in a society. Um, That's a really good model for a social movement, for the church as, as engaging in a social movement. What we often lack, sadly, in our churches is a unity of purpose. Um, when, when we think of, again, the civil rights movement and, and the, the church in movement, um, f- folks, uh, you know, veterans of, of that movement from the inside will say, well, you know, a few people got all the ink as leaders, but a whole lot of folk actually made it happen, oftentimes women who didn't get credit. Um, and, and within the movement, uh, people like Ella Baker understood that uh, the, the, the women baking the cookies um, for the break um, for the movement strategy meeting are every bit as important to the movement as the people in that strategy meeting. That was how it was put at that time. It was very gendered, but the point is um, every, every piece, right, the, the people who maintain the building, the people who set up and break down after meetings, um, the folks who wrangle the beer and wine and pizza are every bit as important as the people in front of the microphone. Um, I think that's the, that's the spirit that churches actually organically could, could live into. But it's the, it's the unity of purpose that we often miss. And so we're actually all off doing our own thing or not doing much of anything. Um, so the, the, the more we can cultivate a unity of purpose with the, uh, through our leadership, the more we can celebrate. And I, a lot of that obviously happens here in Myers Park, but that's a way of responding to your saying, we, we all need to bring our strengths, our passions, um, our central vocations to the big task of being a healing community in an extremely wounded world. Um, and that's very different than finding various religious ways of inter- entertaining ourselves and persuading ourselves ourselves that everything's essentially okay, which is what a lot of church energy is, is about. All right. All right. So please, please, please state your name and your, uh, your rank and serial number and that kind of thing. So uh, real quick. We're gonna... No, no, I, I meant that seriously. Oh, Greg Gerald. Yeah. What, what do you do, Fam- Greg? QC Family Tree, yeah. organizer, yeah. Um, neighborhood minister. So we're, first we're going to put Ben and Chrissy and whoever else on the spot, to learn the story of Ed Loring, who was a child of this congregation. Does anybody remember the name? Ed Loring, L-O-R-I-N-G? So we got to learn the story. Um, Secondly, you... Why? Why Why do we need to learn that story? Ed Loring of the Open Door Community, uh, Murphy Davis, who um, who Elaine mentioned, uh, and Ed were married, um, radical... Folks who lived in community with people experiencing homelessness in Atlanta. They weren't experiencing homelessness anymore when they came to the Open Door community. Uh, so a really beautiful story. And um, that community closed up a couple years ago. Um, and Ed is, a, is a, quite the writer as well. And so some of his publications are out there and available. So speaking of that word radical, um, you've used it. A lot. And here we are in Myers Park among uh, genteel 
well-heeled folks for whom the term radical might sound a bit scary. So, what do you mean by radical? And what are some practices that a church in a neighborhood that was built to get away from the city 100 years ago might institute that would look more radical? Yeah. Do you want to say a word about Ed Loring? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, we love that Ed Loring grew up in this church. Did not know that. Until Did this not trip. know that until Greg told us that today. Um, Ed Loring and Murphy Davis are very important um, people to us. They uh, were, Murphy was a part of the Presbyterian Church. Well, so was Ed. They mm-hmm. were both Presbyterian ministers. Um, or are Presbyterian ministers, um, but left, um, you know, uh, formal ministry to, to form the open-door community, which, as Greg said, uh, worked with folks, homeless folks on the street, but also folks on death row. And Murphy, uh, Murphy is one of the women that I interviewed, um, for a, as a restorative justice practitioner, um, talked about how um, homelessness and uh, the death penalty, the, the relationship between them, the moving of black and brown bodies um, either off the streets or you know the disparity, uh, the sentencing disparities, and then the racial profiling and the and the disproportionate. Uh, disproportionate number of folks of color, particularly black men, that uh, were on death row. So she, and again, Ed is a part of this, but I know her story more, she has been a leading advocate um, to abolish the death penalty and abolish homelessness. And she is such an incredible woman and talks about, like, partly I think what we have to talk about today is also failure. Um, and she, she speaks about it so poignantly because she talks about, you know, in 1976 when she started working on death row, you know, trying to abolish the death penalty. I think right now in Georgia there's four times as many people on death row than there were when she started in 1976. So just the, the feeling of what we are up against and the fa- you know the failure of um, that that work to abolish the death penalty and how we keep going um, when we hit um, resistance and failure as disciples what what keeps us going on and how she just talks about that is it is the community of our churches of our, and again, we'll, we'll tap Chad for the radical discipleship community, but, but it is those, uh, our brothers and sisters that walk, our family that walks along beside us um, to remind us, to give us enough light to go on to take that next step in our discipleship journey or in the fighting um, for justice or in her case, you know, against uh, the death penalty and against uh, homelessness. So, she is an amazing woman, and she's married to Ed. 
who is an equally amazing guy I know. So, but I would just encourage anyone to read, and she's also a writer, so to read the stories and the work um, and the faithfulness of Murphy Davis and Ed Loring. We're not yet voting members of this church, but uh, <laughs> we, would like to second, we would like to second Greg's motion um, and invite you to learn uh, the life and witness of Ed Loring and Murphy Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are s- some of the most significant figures um, yeah, of the last half century in, in the life of, of the church. Um, so, uh, yeah, do a little sleuthing. Build your own museum. Um, better yet, go visit them in Baltimore. They're still there. Um, well, to, to deconstruct the, the, the code language, radical is a term that is um, um, as out of favor today as it was fashionable in the 60s. Um, but, you know, either way, it, it, it got associated and caricatured with... Uh, you know, wild, crazy, um, either hippie kind of costuming or um, throwing Molotov cocktails in the street. Uh, it's actually a much more noble term, as you know. It comes from the Latin radix, which means root. And so to be radical is to be someone who attempts to go to the roots of things. We use the term precisely because it is out of fashion, um, and, and yet it is, a, it is a precise term for what we think our churches need to be about. Namely, we need to be about two, way, two, two journeys to the roots of things. We need to get to the roots of the pathologies that are killing all of us. The pathologies of affluence and the pathologies of poverty. Uh, the, the, the pathologies of white supremacy and the pathologies of um, black demonization. Um, right down the line, there are things that are, that are truly strangling the beautiful life out of all of us. And we like to deal in symptoms. We don't often like to go to the roots of things. Um, we, were, we were watching the, the, the redux of the Watergate uh, um, episode of American history and how uh, uh, Watergate, uh, at the moment that Nixon was forced to, uh, to resign rather than be, be impeached in 1974, um, there was, there was a moment in American history where the, 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 the system of balance of power, you know, you actually had an independent Supreme Court and um, you even had a Republican Party that ended up siding against their own president because of the clear corruption. And, and, and so Nixon resigned and, and there was a moment where everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Wow, the system actually worked. We, we actually had uh, a change of leadership without a military coup. You know, that's a really good thing. But then there was a moment to actually look at the roots of how that corruption got so bad, because it wasn't all about one president. Um, the national security state, the militarization, um, the influence of wealth in politics. This is way back in 1974. We had this moment where, through continued legal um, action and prosecution of crimes, People could have been held accountable, and maybe that could have gotten to some of the roots of those problems. And instead, in one stroke of the pen, Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, and all of it went away. Um, so there was a moment both of triumph but also of a, a failure of nerve to, to get to the roots. So the symptom was dealt with, but the roots were allowed very much in place. And 50 years later, here we are 
with another president who's stonewalling another special prosecutor. Um, and, 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 right, it's history repeating itself because we're not addressing the roots of things. And so, so to be radical in, in this iteration for the church is to refuse to settle for symptom, symptomology, both in diagnosis and in response, to try to always probe deeper to the roots. But it's also to have the commitment to a tradition um, in which we're going to the roots of that tradition to find the resources to do that work of diagnosis and healing. And that means um, looking at the roots of our faith tradition, the, the deep roots, um, not, not, not being dazzled by the current um, superstructure, but saying, so what are the deepest roots of our, our tradition? That, that means disciplines of really wrestling with our scriptures. It means learning our, our history of, of our tradition, the bad and the good and the ugly. Uh, <clears throat> it, it means um, recovering deep practices that have long been forged over, uh, over the history of our tradition uh, of witness. So, so in that sense, being radical is, that's what we mean by, by rally, is, is the disciplines to go deep to the roots, um, both of the problem and of the tradition of healing. Um, and that's, that's how we understand, that's what we mean when we say radical Christianity. Come on. So we got one last question, right. and it's going to need to be a lightning round because there's an important meeting that starts in, you know. Oh, that's right. Three minutes. Right. Such a lightning round. Kill. Ding, 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 ding. So um, I'm Carrie Veal. I'm the Minister of Children and Community Life. And um, when I talk to colleagues outside of this place and they say, so what is community life? I say, I'm helping the church be church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been several things that you have said that have just triggered things for me about the church being church. But I think the, the question is, if we all ha- bring something to the table to make the meal complete, how do we as a church lose this Western idea of competition that what I have brought to the plate is so much better than what you brought to the plate? What you brought to the table is so much better than what I brought to the table, et cetera. Because I think that's where we, that's where the church, I think, is failing each other. Well, again, there's so much language about precisely that in our scriptures, not, not least in the Gospels or, or in the epistles for that matter. There's a huge amount of time and attention that's given to the human um, tendency to uh, construct hierarchies uh, and, and constantly trying to say we, we can be a different kind of body of mutual service and mutual aid and uh, helping one another out. Um, but here, here's the problem. The story that's playing in our heads is beaming at us from the culture 24-7 uh, through advertising, through news, through infotainment, through entertainment, um, and, and that is all based on a particular type of meritocracy, particular type of top-down hierarchy, um, celebrity notions of the great person, and so on. And it's really difficult to counteract, particularly when you only read the alternative story of, of gospel faith, if you're lucky, once a week. 
So we just have to learn to push back harder in churches. We have an alternative story that's cutting against the grain of the culture, but we're not spending very much time immersing ourselves in that, whereas we are awash in the culture. It's no wonder that um, we, we, we tend to sort of assume the dominant culture and sort of trivialize the alternative story. We've got to figure out a way to um, root ourselves more deeply in that and then experiment with that as a kind of practice. So you know, we think potlucks at church are a, are a great object lesson in mutual aid, um, as long as we can understand that you know, the, the, the person that, what, what was it the other day, the person that brought one kind of angel food cake and another kind of angel food cake, it's all good. Um, we're not competing on the angel food cake front. Um, these practices of church could not be more important, but we, we actually have to consciously practice them. We all know how to do potlucks, but we don't actually understand the political economy of potlucks because we don't talk about what we're doing and why. So if every potluck were actually an opportunity to talk about Sabbath economics, for example, um, and uh, the, the practice of mutual aid, uh, that might start to allow the uh, alternative story to take root. But if we're just doing potlucks because that's kind of a quirky thing folk do in church, we don't really know why, um, then... That's how we trivialize the, the tradition. We're elevating, you're out in the street versus the person who says, I'm going to take food to the people in the street, but I don't feel called to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I also just think naming the human condition of what, what you named, the competition, and even what your, you know, the differing gifts, how we are judgmental, either feeling, oh, mine's not good enough, or you know, mine is so much better. I mean, just naming that, that human condition and giving us space, sometime in, sometimes in the simple naming of things, we can deflate that big balloon. Um, and giving, I mean, I just think our, our church spaces, one of the gifts that we can give is a space to have honest community is a space that Malou named yesterday, a brave space, where we talk about the things that we struggle with. You know? And again, if it's a safe space, we've all got, we've all got something we can bring. Um, we all got stuff we're struggling with. Um, and how do, we, how do if we can name some of those things? Because um, as Chad said, that struggle is as old as the human story. And so we have resources um, to, have, to have those conversations. We, we appreciate you um, welcoming us over the last 36 hours and listening to us and hanging out with us. So thanks very much for, for this time together. We wish you all the best going forward. And thank you so much. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.